Welcome. The subject of this lecture is the influence of Gnosticism on Islam. We're going to be looking at various similarities between the two, where there may well be dependence in Islam on Gnostic sources. A very quick introduction to the subject of Gnosticism. <coughs> it is a mysticism that seems to have parasitized Christianity at the beginning and later developed into a very different type of religion. didn't last too long. Disappeared within about three or four centuries. Found it hard to compete with the existing Christian church. You can only see incipient Gnosticism in the New Testament. There are hints of it here and there beginning to rise. What was coming was regarded as a heresy. John talks in one of his epistles of those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. It's exactly what the Gnostics went on to do. And Paul talks of those who propagate what is falsely called, falsely called gnosis, which means knowledge. Uh, here you can just see the beginning of it. But it, from its own records, we can only trace real Gnosticism back to about 100 AD. And as I say, it had to all intents and purposes in its sort of widespread form, disappeared by about 450 AD. Uh, it was only recently that we tracked its, the bulk of its sources when, just by uh, remarkable chance, all the, a huge number of Gnostic books, anything up to 50 of their basic texts and manuscripts were discovered in one batch at a place called Nag Hammadi in Egypt. And from these have only recently been translated. And 2007, first text, the Nag Hammadi Library, was substituted by a book called the Nag Hammadi Scriptures, Marvin Mayer is the editor of them, and they've taken all the texts found at Nag Hammadi, plus one or two others like the Gospel of Mary and the Gospel of Judas, and they put that in uh, one book, and that is virtue of compendium and, as it were, the Gnostic Bible. Uh, the quotes that I have from Gnostic scriptures are coming from that book in this lecture. But as I said, what we find in early Gnosticism and in its texts is a number of parallels between Islam and Gnosticism, where you may well find Muslim dependence. Firstly, the Trinity. It was never formulated in the early years of the Church. Actually, only was defined in real terms about 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea as one God, known as in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, what you can see from the Scriptures itself is that the first two persons are obviously very closely linked because Jesus often spoke of the Father and himself alone in a very, very special way. John 5.20, the Father loves the Son, shows him all that he himself is doing. Matthew 11.27, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. John 5.22, the Father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Now, significantly with these texts, which put tremendous emphasis on just the Father and the Son, you find in Gnosticism much the same thing. But Gnosticism twists it. It has a different kind of Father. I've got to put that in inverted commas, because the Gnostic eternal being is very similar to the Hindu uh, Brahma, where you have to have a Nirvana experience and go into a kind of mystic absorption into an impersonal being that can't be defined. And that is the so-called Father of Gnostic thinking. 
but then he has a reflection of his being in the child or the son. And of course, conveniently in Gnosticism, this happens to be the Savior, Jesus. But significantly, because not much mention is made in these uh, kind of parallels between Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, Gnosticism misses the Holy Spirit almost completely. He has no place in Gnostic thinking. And it's significant that in Islam as well, Ruhul Qudus is the name given to the Holy Spirit. appears about once in the Quran. It's identified as the angel Gabriel. Muslim world's never really been able to detect who the same Holy Spirit is, and so it ignores it. On the other hand, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is very prominent in Islam. And she's the only woman named in the Quran, Maryam. Got a whole chapter named after her, Suratu Maryam, chapter 19. <clears throat> and interestingly, the Quran picks up the Christian belief in a threefold personality, being one God, as a triune, not necessarily even triune, but a triad of God, Mary, and Jesus. Misses the Holy Spirit. And when it refers to the Christian belief, obviously in the Trinity, or that doesn't use that word, it defines it as God, Mary, Jesus. A father, a mother, and a son. A happy family, as it were. Surah 5, verse 76, the Quran says, I speak blasphemy of Allah, who say of him that he is the third of three. And then it says, no, the, uh, <clears throat> he is only one God. And it goes on to identify who the other two are in the next two verses. The Messiah, Jesus, obviously the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. His mother was a chaste woman, and they both used to eat food. So what the Quran is saying is, how could uh, Jesus and his mother be gods alongside God? How could there be three of them when um, Jesus was only a messenger of God? And his mother was just a very pure woman. And after all, they had to eat food to sustain themselves. How can they be two other gods besides Allah? And then you find in Surah 5, 119, much the same. Behold, Allah will say, O Jesus, son of Mary, did you say to mankind, take me and my mothers as two gods in addition to Allah? And Jesus will say, no, I never said such a thing. So you can see that in Islam, the Muhammad has misunderstood the Christian trinity completely. He sees it as God, no mention of father, but certainly as God, and take him as a father figure, Mary, mother, and Jesus, the son. And no parallel to that in the New Testament, or in fact anywhere, even in the most twisted forms of the trinity in Christian belief, over through Nestorian belief, or through Monophysite, or any other kind of error, you don't find anything remotely like this a father, a mother, or a son. But when you go to Gnosticism, this is exactly what you find. And numerous texts uh, uh, perpetuate this idea. The Thought of Noria is a Gnostic text coming from Naghamadi, and that talks about the father being the eternal mind, the uh, essential being. The mother, who is the thought, she's the, the living expression or the sort of mirror image. She thinks father doesn't think he's just got the mind but she does the thinking and then that brings an expression and the son who becomes his word the one who actually speaks borrowing here obviously from john's gospel the first chapter in another gnostic text called eugnostos the blessed you find this again this is from the nagamadi scriptures page 278 to 279 
and it clearly defines father, mother, and son. The first to appear before the universe in infinity is the one who grows by himself, the self-made father. He is full of bright, ineffable light, in the beginning decided to turn his likeness into a great power. The father called the human father by himself revealed this. So on it goes. Then it comes to the second personality. After that came from the immortal, the self-perfected one who conceives. The female name of the child of God, begotten Sophia, is the mother of the universe. And then we go to the last one, the son, the third one. Then the child, the son of humanity, came together with his companion Sophia and produced a bright androgynous light. The saviour came together with his companion, the pistis Sophia. Child here, actually in the original Coptic text, when I say original, we only have Coptic texts, suspected that the Gnostics' texts were originally mainly written in Greek, but just in passing, all ours are Gnostic uh, texts, are all in Coptic, but the word there actually means son. So you've got father, mother, and son. Um, <clears throat> you have this Gnostic adaptation of the father-son relationship from the Gospels, and then this mirror image of the father being the mother. Here again in the holy book of the great invisible spirit, another Gnostic text from page 253. These powers came forth from the great invisible spirit, the father, the mother, and the child. Goes on to definitions of the father as the first realm, the mother as the virgin, Bobilo, and the child or the son, the glory of the father, the virtue of the mother. Uh, interesting that uh, the Virgin Barbelo, similar to the Virgin Mary in the Quran, the second person of this triune being that, uh, that the Quran sees. Twice thereafter in this text, you get this repetition of the father, mother, and child. And thereafter, following Revelation 5 on page 256, it says, They praised, sang, and gave glory with one voice, with one accord, with a mouth that is not silent, to the father, the mother, the child, or correctly, the son. And then lastly, in another Gnostic text called the three forms of first thought, you find again father, mother, son. And if you ask, where did the Gnostics get this from? Well, you go right back to Plato, before the time of Jesus, in his book, Timaeus. And he also had a triad of this sort of father, mother, and child relationship. Three persons uh, who, who sort of symbolize the divine being. Uh, this work, the three forms of first thought, develops that triad theme and does it in the same language that the Quran defines it. I'm not saying here, I've said in other talks, uh, similarities don't prove anything, so I'm not claiming that there's any proof, but there's clearly an influence of Gnosticism here on Islamic thinking. Because as we'll go on to see, there's so much here that is similar to Gnosticism that you've got to ask where the Quran got its picture from because it's clearly an error. No way that the Christian church or Christian people or the Christian Bible teach or believe that uh, God is a triad of father, mother, and child. That's a complete perversion of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, which is of a singular essence uh, being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the comparisons here are substantial. And then the second thing is the crucifixion of Jesus. And here the parallels are too obvious to miss. 
Uh, one has to ask where the Muslim conception of Jesus not being crucified but being taken up to heaven and some way it was made to appear to them that he was crucified. You have to ask where that comes from. Surah 4157, the Jews say, we killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of God. But, says the Quran, they they did not kill him, they did not crucify him. Meaning, but so it was made to appear to them. And the Quran gives no further explanation of this appearance that Jesus was crucified. To all intents and purposes, the Quran says it looked as though he was crucified, but actually he wasn't because Allah took him up to himself. And Muslims have battled with this, and they've come up with a substitution theory themselves, which also has Gnostic parallels, as you'll see, that somebody else was crucified in Jesus' place, and Jesus was taken up to heaven. Uh, but actually, the Quran has a much more deceitic flair to, uh, flavor to it in this passage. It doesn't say that Jesus was substituted. It says they thought they'd crucified Jesus, but it was just made to appear to them that they had done so. And when you see the doceticism that comes out in the apocryphal gospel of Peter and all these other books here that in Gnostic uh, texts, you can see the parallels very, very clearly. Interesting, just in passing, to ask what value you can put on books like the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Judas, all these other books that I'm quoting. Is there any possibility that these are genuine scriptures or even got some kind of historical record of Jesus' teaching that uh, we may not know of? Well, I'm not going to go further than this than to, to quote somebody who is one of the advocates of a positive attitude toward Gnostic texts, the well-known Bart Terman author of Misquoting Jesus. Um, he's the one scholar I've read who uses one word to find all these Gnostic texts in, with an almost perfect definition of them. Uh, he calls them forgeries, and that is just what they are. That comes from his book, Lost Christianities. Let's have a look at what, these, what the forged nature of the uh, destiny of Jesus is in Gnostic texts. According to many books, Jesus was just a Gnostic text. Jesus was just a man, a physical, fleshly body. But the Christ, the, the third person of that triad, the child came from the realm of Barbello, uh, the mother, the virgin mother. And he came into the world and he came on Jesus. You see, you've got the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit in uh, the Gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, all four of them. Um, but that is substituted here by a different anointing. It's the Christ that comes on Jesus. But according to Gnostic texts, and even the Gospel of Peter, which is not a Gnostic text, by the way, but it's a Docetic text, very similar, that just when they crucified Jesus and nailed him to the cross, the Christ stands by watching or leaves him and goes to heaven and he's finished his work so that it wasn't a victory over him at all. Whereas you have one group, the Basilidians, who actually believe that Jesus wasn't crucified at all, that it was Jesus who went to heaven himself, Christ and all, and that it was someone else, Simon of Cyrene, who was crucified in his place. Now, parallels here are too obvious. You have to ask where the Quran gets its definition from, this vague explanation of what happened to Jesus that day. And the par parallels here are clear, uh, obviously a dependence. 
So let's have a look at some of these texts. I'm going to give you the second discourse of the great Seth. It's a Gnostic text. And Jesus is allegedly speaking. Uh, Page 480. I was in the mouth of lions. They hatched a plot against me to counter the destruction of their errant foolishness. But I did not give in to them as they had planned. I was not hurt at all. There you are. I escaped. Though they punished me, that's the physical Jesus, I did not die in actuality, but only in appearance. The Christ went up. And you notice this, Shubbi Halachum, Walakin Shubbi Halachum. It's only made to appear to them so. This is exactly what it says. I was only crucified in appearance. Here's the direct dependence. That I might not be put to shame by them. I freed myself of shame, meaning I, the Christ, the child, went to heaven. I did not become faint-hearted because of what they had done to me. I suffered only in their eyes. They thought that the Christ was still on Jesus, the anointed one. They thought they'd crucified that Christ. They think I suffered in their error and their blindness. They nailed their man to the death, meaning they put the physical shell of a human Jesus to death. But I, the Christ, I escaped any kind of consequence. Uh, As for me, they saw and punished me, but someone else, their father, drank the gall and the vinegar. It was not I. Same thing again. They were striking me with a scourge, but someone else, Simon, bore the cross on his shoulder. Someone else wore the crown of thorns. See that? Uh, it's, it's vague. It's, uh, it's mystical. It's ethereal. Call it what you like. It's really hard to tie down. But the basic theme is that as they came to arrest Jesus and they thought they were going to crucify me, the Christ, the mystical one, the one who came from the great realms, all the evil forces, the archons, came together, massed against me. But I escaped back to the eternal realms uh, of, of Barbello and of the eternal father. That is the theory. I want to read you this comment from Marvin Mayer, who actually introduces this text, the second discourse of the great Seth in these words. What makes the crucifixion laughable is the ignorance of the powers who think that they can execute the real living Jesus. The mention made of Simon in the text is reminiscent of the role of Simon of Cyrene in the New Testament, where it is said that he carries the cross for Jesus, or it may call to mind the observation of Irenaeus and Epiphanius, who claim that, according to the Gnostic teacher Basilides, Simon of Cyrene was crucified in place of Jesus. Yet in the second discourse, Simon is never actually crucified. And Jesus said, it is their man that the world rulers put to death, the physical body that the heavenly Savior borrowed. In other words, just the shell of a human Jesus. Furthermore, the comment by Jesus in the second discourse, though they punished me, I did not die in actuality, but only in appearance, may recall classical formulations of docetic views of the crucifixion and even the position of the Quran, which states in Surah 4 that the opponents of Isa, that is Jesus, did not kill him for sure, but he was made to resemble another for them, or they thought that they did. Well, in my view, is clear Quranic dependence here on this passage. And in fact, if you want to understand those very, very vague verses in the Quran, this is the only explanation for them. A second discourse interprets a crucifixion as follows on page 481. They bound this one with many bonds and nailed him to the cross and they secured him with the four bronze nails. They had 
come to know the blessed perfect one of the eternal incomprehensible father and the infinite light that is what i am in other words the two of us were together i was the christ i am the child i come from the realm of babylon the eternal realms and i anointed the jesus person the human and they didn't like me not jesus from that moment i took him over but just when they thought they were going to vin, uh, sort of take their revenge on me and pour out all their wrath against me i slipped off back to heaven and jesus the male the mascu uh, masculine human being suffered in consequence <sighs> you know it's it's dreadful stuff and the fact that it gets into the quran speaks for itself <clears throat> jesus putting this in inverted commas then adds the world was not receptive to my visible exaltation my third immersion in an image that was perceptible the flame of the seven authorities was extinguished the sun of the powers of the, the rulers set darkness overcame them and the world became impoverished uh, at worst only the physical man jesus or even simon of cyrene was crucified <clears throat> but the christ was released and went to heaven it's significant that there's only one verse in the quran that deals with the crucifixion of jesus and it denies it in the same kind of ethereal language that you find here right we move on to another <clears throat> area where you can see similarities between gnosticism and islam a hadith parallel in the mishkatul masabi volume 1 page 45 produced by sheikh muhammad ashraf you find this hadith the banu israel divided into 72 sects this is muhammad speaking but my people will divide into 73 sects all of which but one will go to hell <laughs> well that would disturb me if i was a muslim uh, especially when they claim the whole muslim world is united this 73 sects of islam and only one is going to go to hell uh, to heaven the rest are going to hell many muslim scholars have tried to identify those 72 sects uh that are all hell bound and that only the true muslims are going to heaven but you ask yourself where does the 72 come from well if you look into these gnostic texts you find the number 72 appearing again and again in a gnostic book known as on the origin of the world one of their texts page 207 from marvin mayer's uh, collection seven archangels stand before the throne sabaoth is the eighth and he has authority so there are 72 figures in all from this chariot the 72 gods took shape so that they might rule over the languages of the 72 nations see this figure 72 sects in islam 72 nations 72 gods gospel of judas recently discovered page 766 he revealed 72 luminaries in the incorruptible generation by the will of the spirit the 72 luminaries in return revealed 360 luminaries in the incorruptible generation much the same thing light gods call them what you like page 397 we go to another gnostic text this time the concept of our great power when he uttered these words he spoke in 72 languages now we're really beginning to vary it's always the same number 72 gods luminaries languages but watch this one page 325 from the first revelation of James this is supposed to be Jesus speaking to James the master said there are 72 inferior heavens that belong to them goes on the power in them 
insignificant as it is, brought forth for itself angels and hosts without number, but the one. Now notice this. You heard earlier in Islam of 72 sects and only one above it, number 73, that is true. But the one who is given, this is now the eternal one, God, because of the one who is without number. If you wish to number them now, you'll not be able to do so until you throw off blind thought, this bond of flesh surrounding to you. Only then will you attain to the one who is. And then you will no longer be James, but you are that one who is. And all those without number will have names given to them. Wow, what an obscure text. Glad I don't have to write commentaries explaining Gnostic uh, texts and mythology. But what you can sift out of here is a clear parallel with the Mishkat. There you have this tradition of Muhammad that there are 73 sects, 72 are inferior. They are going to be written off, they're all going to hell. Only one is true. Uh, that is clearly picked up from the first revelation of James. It's obvious that this is its origin because here you not only have 72 heavens, but they are described as inferior. All 72 are inferior. You've got to attain to the one, not the one correct sect. In Gnosticism, the one who is, the eternal one, and you'll become that one. You've got to get beyond those 72 heavens. So in Islam, you've got to get beyond those 72 inferior sects and you've got to become uh, a member of the only supreme one that will be accepted. Incidentally, in Jewish tradition, you find 72 is the Jewish number of all the nations on earth. What the original or, uh, you know, source of all this is, is purely a matter of guesswork. But interesting to find that in Jewish tradition, Right in Islamic tradition and in Gnostic texts, this number 72 comes together. Another uh, area here where we find obvious similarities in detail. So once again, there's clearly, if not uh, dependence, certainly influence, is in the Muslim concept of the Miraj, which is the ascension of Muhammad to heaven. Now, <clears throat> there's very little mention of this in the Quran. Like the crucifixion, it gets one text. And it's Surah 17 and verse 1. And it reads, Glory to God who did take his servant for a journey by night from the sacred mosque to the farthest mosque whose precincts we did bless in order that we might show him some of our signs. For he is the one who hears and sees. Um, all it says is <coughs> that the pr prophetic figure, whoever he was, Muhammad, was taken from the nearest mosque to the furthermost mosque, to the Masjid al-Aqsa, Masjid al-Haram, the Kaaba in Mecca, to Masjid al-Aqsa, the furthermost mosque in Jerusalem, to show him some of our signs. On top of this text, quite what this was, we don't know. According to some Islamic traditions, Muhammad had a dream that he was taken on an angelic being with an angel's head and a horse's body and a peacock's tail, and he was taken off to Jerusalem and came back in one night. But... <coughs> You find this, for example, in the Sahih Muslim, uh, volume 1, page <coughs> 101, which reads as follows. I was brought al-Burak, that's that angelic uh, beast, who is an animal white and long, larger than a donkey, but smaller than a mule, who would place his hoof at a distance equal to the range of vision. I mounted it and came to the temple by a tulmakodis in Jerusalem and tethered it to the ring used by the prophets. So what he's saying is, in this vision I had, Burak, this uh, horse, mule, whatever it was, picked me up, took me across to Jerusalem, 
And there I found the sort of ring that was attached to the wall. And all the prophets had used this ring beforehand. And so now I used the ring as well. And I tied Barak to that while I went in to see the signs. And that's a sort of embellishment of the teaching <coughs> of the Quran in Surah 17.1. But then you find from Sahih of al-Bukhari, volume 6, page 196, and other hadith, that Muhammad from there took a journey up right into the heavens until he met with Allah himself in the glory of heaven and then came back to earth. Firstly, he went down to hell to see all the horrors of hell and what was happening, the punishment of the damned. And he went through the heavens as well and met all the prophets two by two. And he went into a realm of great light. And of course, then he also bumped into Moses on the way. And he went up, according to the uh, Hadith traditions, right into the presence of Allah himself. And I'm going to read these words from the Sahih of al-Bukhari, volume 1, page 213. Then Allah enjoyed, enjoined 50 prayers on my followers. That means 50 times a day. When I returned with this order of Allah, I passed by Moses, who asked me, what has Allah enjoined on your followers? <clears throat> I replied, he has enjoined 50 prayers on them. Moses said, go back to your Lord and appeal for a reduction, <clears throat> for your followers will not be able to bear it. So he went back and the story goes, Allah said, all right, I'll reduce it to 40. <clears throat> so he goes back to Moses and he tells him that. No, says Moses, uh, they won't accept that. Too many for them, go back. <clears throat> he goes back and back until it comes down to five. And so Muhammad says, okay, he's been very gracious. He's brought it down to five times a day. Go back, says Moses. Too much, they won't do it. And then in Ibn Ishaq, uh, Sirah Rasulullah, page 187, he said, I replied I'd been back to my Lord and asked him to reduce the number until I was ashamed and I wouldn't do it again. <coughs> a subtle hint of the superiority of Muhammad over Moses. Although I think Moses knew more about human nature than he did. He was right. He said, they'll never do it. They'll never manage to pray five times a day. And the Muslims themselves will tell you it's a heavy burden to try and achieve that. <coughs> Where's the story come from? Did Muhammad really go to heaven? Muslims have a festival once a year, Laylatul Miraj, where they commemorate this, the ascension. What actually happened? Where does this come from? Well, it comes right back from a Zoroastrian text. Uh, this story, by the way, is repeated in similar forms in many different religions. Pagan Egyptian mythology has Ormazd <coughs> going, doing very much the same thing. Uh, sorry, the, uh, not Ormazd himself, but he was a god. You find also in Zoroastrianism that Zoroaster went through. This appears to be the original story from which this whole thing comes. And you find in Gnosticism that Zostrianus, in the book of Zostrianus, he does the same. He's obviously a Gnostic adaptation of Zoroaster, <coughs> particularly with the name Zostrianus. But he goes through all the heavens as well. He has a graded series of revelations and visions. He's instructed about each level's characters and inhabitants. He starts off with an angel of light who rescues him from suicidal despair and it leads him on a cloud of light, just as Muhammad was led on an angelic being with an angelic face, and he goes through numerous eons. Eons are levels. It's what Muhammad went through, different phases of heaven. <coughs> a number of them are named in this. I'm not going to bore you with detail, but he goes, just name them to the through Sophia, who is the fallen divine wisdom, four luminaries, the triple male child he meets, goes through a realm of the autogenes, 
goes through another phase, various eons of Calyptos and other sub-eons, <coughs> eventually goes through the eon of Barbello, who is a reflection, the visible reflection, the first thought of the eternal source. And finally, he ends up at the supreme deity, the triple-powered invisible spirit, which is just another Gnostic term found in texts for the father, that uh, ethereal eternal being. When you look in the Revelation of Paul, another Gnostic text, you find that Paul is supposed to have gone through ten heavens before getting to the highest. And uh, here too, he defines what he saw in those ten heavens. Quite amazing. That, by the way, is derived from 2 Corinthians 12, 2 to 4, where Paul does talk about a man I know in Christ who was caught up into the third heaven and so on. Well, let me give this to you from another Gnostic text called On the Origin of the World. Just moving on from that, just go back and just cap on it. The Muslim idea of Muhammad ascending into heaven is so heavily paralleled in all these stories beforehand. Zoroaster going to heaven, Zostrianus uh, here in this particular book, that you can't help but see a dependent. It was a common myth of some holy figure who goes right up into the eternal realm and then comes down, maybe he goes down to see the powers of hell, <clears throat> he goes through various eons and realms. It's just a matter of difference of detail in each story. But it's quite clear that the Islamic story of Muhammad's ascension to heaven is dependent on this. Just to be fair again, it's based on uh, the hadith records of his al-Miraj, uh, we're not talking on his night journey, which is a kind of vision or dream Muhammad had, which is the only thing mentioned in the Quran where he went from Mecca to Jerusalem and then back again. The Isra, al-Isra, the journey. All right, let me give you another one on the origin of the world. You'll see, and this is part of the Miraj, there's a text on page 221 of the Nag Hammadi Library of Scriptures, <coughs> which says that those who have not become perfect in the unbegotten Father, will receive glory in their realms and the kingdom of the immortals, but they will nevertheless enter, sorry, but they will never enter the kingless realm. <clears throat> what you have here is something very similar to one of the scenes that Muhammad has when he goes through the heavens. <clears throat> he sees all the horrors of the people sent to hell, and then he sees the glories of paradise for all the faithful Muslims, and he gets into a room or a chamber where he meets a whole lot of them dressed in beautiful white. But then he meets another group. This is a group who are neither too good or too bad. They don't, they're not good enough for heaven, but they're not bad enough for hell either. They somehow have just sort of balanced out their good deeds and their bad deeds, and they're in the middle. Uh, they get in a special chamber for themselves, not up to much by comparison with paradise, but it's certainly a lot better than going down to hell. And in Islamic art, particularly a very famous manuscript of the ascension of Muhammad's ascension to heaven, they have got a sort of checkered coat on it, sort of like a check, checkered board of black and white squares, half black and half white. Well, similar thing here. They're not perfect. They haven't quite perfected themselves in their gnosis of the Supreme One. So they will get a glory somewhere in the kingdom, but they will never enter the kingly realm itself. Uh, a parallel here, uh, once again, too many parallels between Gnosticism and Islam. There's obviously a Gnostic influence on Islamic tradition. 
and now the last one. And this is the two angels in Islam that come and visit you according to Islamic tradition when you die. Uh, Muslims are told that Munkar and Nakir are two fearsome angelic creatures and they come down and they start asking you questions after you die. Uh, another tradition tells you that they sit on your shoulders all your life and they weigh up your good deeds and bad deeds. Every time you do a good deed, one of them records it. Every time you do a bad deed, the other one records it. And if on the day of judgment that you find that uh, the bad deeds outweigh the good, well, you're going to fall off the bridge and you're going to end in the fire. But if the good outweigh the bad, you'll be all right. But in, as I say, another common tradition is that after you're buried, they come to you and they interrogate you. And Islamic tradition says that they ask you three questions. <clears throat> and if you don't get these three questions right, they're going to harass you and persecute you till the day of judgment. But if you get them right, they'll leave you alone. Questions are simple. Who is your God? Who is your prophet? And what is your religion? And if your answer to that is, my God is Allah. Okay. Who's your prophet? Muhammadur Rasulullah. What's your religion? Islam. They leave you alone. <laughs> So long as you're a good Muslim, you're okay. But if you get that wrong and you just mix up one of them and you, even by mistake you say Christianity or Judaism or something else or your prophet is Moses or whoever, <clears throat> well, then you're going to be persecuted till the day of judgment. Now, this has clear origins in Gnostic teaching because according to Gnostic belief, you do the same. Only the very enlightened ones who have attained the true Gnosis can get right through to the heavenly realm. When you die, they say you virtually walk a gauntlet of archons. Archons are sort of not necessarily evil powers, but certainly not benevolently aligned powers. These archons want to destroy you. And they sort of hover as you go towards the heavenly realm. You go right through this passage and they don't shoot at you or fire darts at you. No, they fire questions at you. And if you just mix them up and you get it all wrong, well, then they pull you down and you don't make the eternal realms. So I'll just give the narrative as it appears once again in the first revelation of James. Gnostic text, again supposed to be Jesus speaking to James. And on page 3328, this is what the advice is that Jesus gives James. If you fall into their hands, the one who is their God will say to you, Who are you and where are you from? You are to say to him, being told what to answer. I am a son, and I am from the Father. He will say to you, What kind of son are you, and to what father do you belong? And you are to say to him, I am from the pre-existent father, and I am a son of the pre-existent one. Then he will say to you, With what mandate have you come? Now you are to say, I come at the behest of the pre-existent one, that I may see those who are ours who become aliens. He will say to you, of what kind are those aliens? Now you must say to him, they're not really alien, but they're from Achamoth, who is female, and so on. If you say these things, you will avoid their attacks. Now this is very interesting, because it's similar to Islam. If you give the right Gnostic answers to the questions, this is what you will get. You'll be free to go into the eternal realm of the unbegotten father. But if you get it wrong, you're going to be attacked, you're going to be harassed forever. And that's paralleled in the Islamic tradition of Munkar and Nakir, where they're going to ask you questions, and if you get the questions wrong, you're going to end up in the same position. And so here in the revelation of James, Jesus is supposed to be advising James himself, 
These are the questions they're going to ask you, and those are your answers. Since these uh, Gnostic texts became available, we've been able to have a good look at them and see what the parallels are between Gnosticism and Islam. Similarities, and as I've said before, similarities don't prove dependence until you have alternative evidence that grounds them and you can see clearly that the one is borrowing from the other or at least is leaning on it. The <coughs> problem here is, and this is where the grounding comes, there are too many similarities. Somebody once said to me, I don't believe in coincidences because if I did, well, there are too many of them. That was just a remark he made about being a Christian and knowing that God works too often with us. Too many things happen that look like coincidences, but they can't be. Often there are answers to prayer. Conversely here, when there are too many similarities, when you have exact parallels, point for point, between Islamic tradition or whatever is said in the Quran, and also in what you find in Gnostic teaching, you get the point. The appearance that Jesus had been crucified, whereas in truth he hadn't been. Got too many similarities, too many parallels with the Gnostic concept. The triad of father, mother, and child goes the same way as the Quranic conception of father, mother, and son, or even just God, Mary, and Jesus. And in all the other evidences I've given you, it's quite clear that early Islam, apart from many of the other sources it was dependent on, also had a number of Gnostic origins. <coughs>